episode 42, The Dark Knight Rises, directed by Christopher Nolan. I'm Mike Manzi. I'm Chris Podcast. And I'm Joey Lewandowski. And I think, Mr. Bean and Mr. Manzi, that this is the first time I've seen this movie since theaters, which seems crazy to me. But also, because I haven't seen it so long, I thought for some reason in my head that I didn't like it. I really like this movie. Yeah, I only caught it in theaters once, and I think I saw it once on home video, but out of all Batman movies ever made that he's in, I think this is the one I've seen the least, and man, did I enjoy it. I really did. I liked it this time the most I ever have. I think it's a good movie. I don't think anyone could, in good faith, say that this is a a bad movie. It is a step back. It is not a step down. I think it may fail as the end of a trilogy's cohesive story, but I think as a movie on its own and a movie about two leather daddies punching each other, I think it works just fine. It's a punch man's movie, and that's okay. They usually are. We got that dominatrix in the middle of those two leather daddies, too, so... This movie's hot as fuck. I want to mention off the top, but this is something I think we talked about on the Batman Begins episode and a little bit on the Dark Knight episode about the ideas for the trilogy for each individual movie, for how they work either one or as a whole or whatever. Apparently, when Jonathan Nolan first laid out the trilogy, he had the idea that at the end of the second movie, they were going to be in court and the Joker was going to cut up Harvey Dent's face and sort of create Two-Face at the end of the second one. And then this movie would be the sort of the rise and the fall of Harvey Dent. Which I think is something that, Chris, you were saying that you, you that in The Dark Knight, you wished that Harvey Dent wasn't in there because it felt just too overstuffed with everything else was going on. Is that right? I think everyone was kind of on board with that, honestly. Um, the Harvey Dent would be fine there. I think the extent to which they went with Two-Face was too rushed. A whole movie for Two-Face probably would have been better. The reason that didn't happen is because Christopher Nolan had this idea that he never wanted one of his Batman movies to tease the next one. He wanted each of them to stand on their own, which I think is another reason why maybe it should function better as a trilogy. But I think that if you look at these as just three individual Batman movies set in the same universe, as opposed to a trilogy that tells a cohesive story like The Matrix or whatever, I think that it works better in that regard. I also want to point out while we're at the beginning of this episode, while we're just two or three minutes in, that also today on the Cage Club Podcast Network, if you're listening to this episode as it comes out on September 3rd, another podcast on our network, Real Bad, is also covering this movie. So I think we're going to like it a lot more than they do. We'll see what they think about it. I don't know that Nick Jenkins likes it very much. This was, at the time this movie came out, the longest superhero movie to date. But you know, on that podcast, they've covered a couple other very, very long superhero movies, which might be longer, I don't know. But I want to point that out that if you want to listen to this episode, which is going to be probably mostly positive, go over to real bad possibly more negative but i don't know because they also like last week they dare a couple weeks ago or whenever a month and a half ago i don't know time is a flat circle they covered prometheus the same week that we did prometheus for watch the throne and it was a split opinion on that show whereas we were more positive on watch the throne so tldr go check out real bad after you listen to this episode and get a double dose a crossover event of the dark knight rises I also just wanted to say that I just feel like these function much better as single movies than an entire trilogy. But this is a pretty interesting part three in and of itself in that there are like lots of callbacks and a lot of references and to the things that have happened, even though we don't mention like the Joker by name, we do get Scarecrow back again in the League of Shadows. One theme in here, too, is the enemy 
lying in wait and then re-emerging when you least expect kind of thing. So I feel like there's a lot of stuff coming back from part one here at the end of the journey and everything. But ultimately, yes, I think it's a good thing that they are so self-contained, whereas nowadays everything has to be or the studios are so quick to make it a, you know, shared universe. I like that even in Nolan's trilogy, it's not exactly strict continuity. And I also do want to say really quickly here off the top that the Joker is intentionally not named in this movie because they wanted to pay respect to Heath Ledger, that there were versions of this or maybe the original script or ideas that they had where they would reference the Joker. Or even I think at one point they were considering using like leftover footage from the Dark Knight and then some kind of like CGI to bring the Joker in this movie in some way. Oh, Crow style. Yeah, like Brandon Lee style. Yeah, but in like a different movie, like, you know, an altogether different movie, you know what I mean? So, but they didn't do that, which I'm which I'm glad that they didn't. That, again, it is sort of isolated, separated, that we have the callback to the first movie in that Marion Cotillard's character is the daughter of Ra's al Ghul. But, again, she sort of functions independently, and even if you haven't seen Batman Begins, which I'm assuming everybody's seen this movie has, you could sort of get the League of Shadows reset up through Bane. You know what I mean? So, like, even if you don't know Ra's al Ghul, you know the League of Shadows, and you know where she came from, the pit, because of this movie on its own. Are any of the rest of you, like, comic nerds, like, did you know that character? I'm very much aware of Talia al Ghul and the detective's relationship and Raz al Ghul's involvement. And, you know, I was not expecting her to be Talia whatsoever. That that was a twist for me. Okay. While they do pay respects in part to their relationship in the comics, it is in no way whatsoever, by any means... They play fast and loose with a lot of the details, but I was, I'm ultimately fine with it. I think it works. Like, again, it works for this movie and this universe. I mean, I, I think even the way they change Bane is completely fine with me. You know, how they he sort of, like, takes what he likes and customizes him to fit his universe. I, I'm fine with the changes. Having known that Talia al Ghul exists, when they directly reference Roz and they heavily imply that whomever crawled out of the not-Lazarus pit would be his offspring and they, they heavily imply it's Bane I'm just like oh well, well it's it's not I, I doubt no one's made up a new character like and it's, it's not even Catwoman I guess it's Baron Cotillard okay he got me that way I guess just with misdirection I mean you know even though he collapses his own misdirect at the end of the film like for the most part I guess it just tricked me because he was changing the Bane character so much in the first place in the comics he is born in prison you know so they do use some of his origin for her and so yeah just the way that he was sort of commingling facts and uh, ideas here he, he ended up getting me if, if we're going to roll into Bane, then I want to use this kind of moment to, to transition and, and talk about something that I brought up in the Batman Begins episode. I feel like in some way she serves as Nolan's counter to the idea that a lot of people after they saw The Dark Knight suggested that it was a very political, very right-wing Warhawk movie due to the use of like literal enhanced interrogation and mass spying for the quote-unquote greater good. This movie, I think people knock it because of the the symbolism and the, the semiotics completely failing. And Nolan addresses that because he does use relevant political, relevant to the time, political symbology again. Occupy, the 1%, very 99, the Bane's kind of faux Marxist revolution, but 
At the same time, he doesn't because, like, they're not seizing any means of production. They're harming rich people, like, bringing them down to the slums, but they're not, like, redistributing wealth. And in the end, Bane's master plan is because he loves a girl. So, like, I really feel like Talia, in a way, exists for Nolan to be like, yeah, everything I've been doing, like, it's, it, it's not really actually, like, political semiotics. It's just, like... Just using it to tug on your emotions, man. Don't, don't you get me yet? And like that, that kind of came to me in this this long review of Nolan that we've been doing. I hear what you're saying because like I feel like it it addresses stuff. Like it says like Wall Street and terrorism, but ultimately I feel like it just says those things yeah. are bad. Like Wall Street's bad, right? Like terrorism. Ooh. Um, hey, you know who sucks? Wall Street, bitch. Rich people they fuck things up sometimes. I'm a 14 year old. So I think more than ever, maybe he's using like this shorthand and it really is like imagery is forefront here with that kind of stuff when he's trying to bring up themes and points. I, I think when you actually listen to the people talking and stuff, it is about like relationships and like saving your own ass and stuff. But also, you know, Alfred wants Master Wayne to settle down and have a family like Bruce wants to pass on the mantle. Selena wants a clean slate. Like all these people are just trying to get out of this basically but it's just strange it, it again is almost like a little bit of like a bait and switch where it's like here's a bunch of topics but it's gonna be superhero movie like i agree that the movie wants to be political and wants to like say these things are bad and like has a comment about like we are the 99 percent or whatever but i also wonder if there's a commentary above that because toward the end when they take over wayne manor and they have like all the homeless people or whoever is whoever's living there i don't know and juno temple who i completely forgot was in this movie because i don't or maybe i just didn't know that she was her in this movie but anne hathaway's sidekick is like isn't this what you want? This is what we were, like, going for, like, the house is being used. Anne Hathaway just sort of feels kind of, like, empty inside. And I almost wonder if that's, like, a commentary on, like, empty revolutions? Like, we wanted this thing, we did this thing, but now we don't know what to do next. And I don't know if that's supposed to be here, if that's just my reading, or if that's just Anne Hathaway, like, a moment of realization that, like, oh, no, she actually wants to be, like, she wants to save Bruce or Batman or whatever. But I feel like that could be a reading. Like, if this movie wants to be political, that could be, like, another twist or tilt beyond that, maybe. Yeah, and I see what you're saying, because at its core, these movies can really be read as very right-wing. If you're going off of that reading, then you're also going off you know, Iraq war was good, torture all the terrorists, waterboard all the brown people, and get the information by any means necessary to save the world. And then this would be a condemnation of the far left and the Occupy movement and how the rich are actually good. They're saving the world while the left are uh, just camping and doing nothing. Like, that's absolutely a valid reading of it. But I think Nolan does strictly go against that and kind of admit to just appropriating imagery to make his greater ideas, which are much lesser ideas and more emotional concepts and things that he wants you to feel. I don't think, to, to quote Matt Crispin, there's a line in his review that I really like. He says that politics is the study of collective action problems and superhero films are devoid of meaningful collective action, dot, dot, dot. There's no room in these fever dreams of unhinged violence and total domination for what Max Weber called the slow boring of hardboards, the push and pull and compromise of interest group politics. And he's right, like at its core, even though there is that stuff that we remember because we also saw the Occupy style rhetoric that existed in the real world, we connected to that, but it's not saying anything. And that's the real issue. It really is just punch man's. Nolan doesn't do politics. We've looked for it. He co-ops imagery. He does not do politics. And that's a failure of this movie that hangs kind of 
over the entire rest of the trilogy. Do you think less of the other movies because of this movie? I think people who are making critical efforts to analyze Nolan's trilogy use this as the jumping off point, and this is the one that most overtly uses political imagery, specifically leftist political imagery, which is going to be largely in line with the ideologies of the people who are analyzing the film. Therefore, they use this as a jumping off point and work backwards to the detriment of the rest of the trilogy. I also think on the one hand, and I think it goes right in line with the quote that you just read, that like if you're going to a superhero movie and expecting like a deep message, you're watching the wrong movie. Right. I mean, and it's not like any other superhero movie hasn't had overt political semiotics like Civil War. Pretty much anything with Tony Stark is like strictly a libertarian kind of parody. But this one, just Nolan thinks he can get away because it's a big idea movie with using political imagery and specifically political imagery from two starkly opposed ideologies in different movies and think that no one's going to attempt to read that as this is what the films are saying. And so it, that's in a way a failure on his part because just his robbery of imagery from the real world without saying anything about it weakens the film as a whole. But it doesn't necessarily make it a bad movie. It just makes it a vapid movie. I mean, it's a superhero movie, so really that's just bringing it back to par. It would have been nice, though, because these are opportunities to get into a discussion in a Batman movie and open up these kinds of discussions. And so maybe it is a little irresponsible to just co-opt that imagery of the times that is the most powerful that's playing on TV that you can see and throw it in a movie you know everyone is going to see anyway. And then they could sort of be thinking about one thing and just apply that to what you're showing them. And then that way they're making connections that aren't even there. Or if they are, they're very basic surface or in this case they're just imagery uh, one thing i also found interesting too even the good guys in this movie vis-a-vis -vis, like the cops like this whole harvey dent plan that batman and gordon pulled off like it's basically like ozymandias like it's basically that same sort of thing where it's like for the greater good kind of thing it's like a piece built on the lie and like that's always gonna turn out to be toxic or rotten i mean that can never last you know so if anything, like, there's maybe just the most basic themes of this movie is tell the truth, and um, it might be painful, but in the long run, it's going to be better. I finally saw Logan recently, and I had the same problems with it that I had with the Dark Knight movies in the Nolan trilogy, which is that when the movie decides to forget that it's a superhero movie, it works and it does something interesting. But then inevitably, it has to regress to the mean and remember that it's a fucking superhero movie and superhero shit has to happen. And that's where the movies that aspire to be something greater kind of begin to fall apart because they set you up for something that they can never possibly be. Which is what? Not a superhero movie. Oh. Just that, like in Logan, they still have to sort of whip out the powers at the end. and Exactly, yeah. You can't just end it with them crossing the border, you know? <laughs> like, I mean, you should end it because Westerns do end that way. Like, plenty of other genres can pull that off. So it's a little bit of a shame. Like, why not a movie like Logan where it's touting itself as something that's, you know, subverting or changing the genre as this R-rated thing that it is, but yet it, yeah, relies or ultimately falls back on convention. What I think this movie does a good job of wrapping up, if it doesn't necessarily wrap up a story or tell themes or really stretch itself beyond, far beyond the superhero genre, is I think it does wrap up a very effective three-movie Batman story, like as a character study of 
both Bruce Wayne and Batman going from the inception of Batman, not to talk about inception, but the inception of Batman to facing his arguably biggest threat to suddenly being in a world that no longer needs him, but now all of a sudden needs him again. And sort of like that, like almost like a, in a Western sense, Mike, like a, a one last ride. I think for whatever criticisms you can hurl at these movies or at the trilogy or whatever, and again, I love all three of them, I think it works really, really well as an evolution of this character study of a boy into a man with like the life in between. And then him, you know, with his super cute girlfriend in Italy. I remember watching this the first time and going like eight years since Batman's been on. Really? But then I remembered the shot of him we got like in the last movie of his back, which I think was sort of a reference to a famous Alex Ross Batman painting where you see all the scars and damage that he has. So like, I kind of like this. Like, this is what DC wants now, right? Like the old grizzled, seen it all kind of Batman, or at least the one who's like at the end of his career. They had it right here and they had a whole movie of it. And I don't know if they knew it, but I'm really digging that. And I'm really digging his sort of Howard Hughes persona now as Bruce Wayne, because it's just another great riff on sort of like the reclusive billionaire that would apply to Bruce Wayne. I think it charts pretty nicely. The end of this movie, I take it at face value, the end of this movie, and so like he's basically able to pass it on like he wanted, and Batman will be a symbol from now on, and it can be what it was always meant to be, like, mission accomplished. And what I like about where he winds up, and maybe it's just because I like this character, and I like this actor, and I like this story of Batman, I like that he gets a happy ending. That not only is he able to, you know, give Gotham the last possible thing he can, which is, for all intents and purposes, his life, both as Bruce Wayne and as Batman, but he also gets a, you know, he gets a date Anne Hathaway and be happy with, in Italy, with, maybe with Alfred, or maybe not with Alfred, who knows? That was also my very clumsy transition into wanting to talk about Anne Hathaway. Don't transition yet, real quick, because I said this in the first episode. Go ahead. The trilogy opens with Alfred at the creation of Batman, and ends with an Alfred scene, despite him not being in this movie very much, at the retirement, essentially, of Batman. I think it works really well. I think this trilogy works really well as Alfred's story almost more than anybody else's, even though Bruce Wayne is the one who gets the send-off, and Gotham certainly goes on a ride throughout this entire franchise. Looking at opening and closing scenes of the franchise, in some ways this could entirely be read as Alfred's story, and I sort of love that. I do too. And I think I talked about in the Dark Knight episode when I came home, like my, my big takeaway was like how good Michael Caine was. Like, yeah, of course, Heath Ledger was great as Joker, but Michael Caine was so good in that movie. And then here, you know, we have his like super emotional scenes about, you know, I won't bury another Wayne, you know, him sobbing at what he thinks is Bruce's funeral. All these different moments where it's just heartbreaking that this guy, really the last Wayne, you know, this family, I don't think we talk about that enough. I don't know if we talked about that in either of the other episodes, is that in Batman Begins, when Bruce comes back home and has this sort of awkward, I don't want to sleep in my parents' bedroom. He's like, well, no, you're the master of the house now. Like, that's your room. Bruce doesn't have kids. I mean, I guess he could after this life, but they're not going to be part of the Wayne lineage in Gotham. They're not going to be part of the Gotham environment. If they have kids, they're going to be over in Italy or wherever they're going to wind up. For all intents and purposes, like this grand line in the city of Gotham that has meant so much, both good and bad in ways, to the city has ended. And so Alfred, who have probably his entire life and maybe even his parents' lives before him, their life has been, their goal, their mission, their you know singular vision or whatever has been to 
care for the Wayne family. And so when Bruce, quote unquote, dies, Alfred's like, I have nothing left. Like, he's got this house, but like, there's nothing, there's no reason to have the house. And the house is going to be sold or like things are going to be left to him. But the house is going to be sold to pay off like what the family owes. And it's just, I think in that regard, like, I never thought about how like Batman doesn't have kids and that Alfred's main reason for being is to essentially care for the Waynes and when he thinks Bruce dies like what does he have left like I mean he's got his pussy posse on the boat but like that's just empty fun like he doesn't have you know the thing he cares about most is the Waynes or in these movies just Bruce and it's it's sad you guys are right. Like, I'm on your side here with the Alfred story. I buy into, like, this This would make a great term paper. Absolutely. That scene at the grave when he's like, I failed you, Master Wayne. You know, when he's talking to his parents' graves. That is just heart-wrenching. Because Bruce has severed his own lineage in uh, exchange for the legacy of Batman, you know? Like, now he is a legend, and he had to give up the the Wayne name for Batman, and Alfred was never really 100% on that, right? Like, he was always trying to talk him out of it, or, or, you know, at least take care of him, I guess, was the thing. So he worried about him. He's definitely not like Alfred now, where he's, like, you know, cleaning his guns and stuff like that. So it is kind of tragic, but I take a little solace in the fact, knowing that now that Wayne Manor is sort of like they house for orphan boys they're definitely gonna need a butler in there like a a, a guy like alfred like he could have all these extra kids to look after now and and i definitely think when we get to it that blake is gonna need an alfred of some kind of his own that knows his way around the cave i think that his last years his twilight years are, are gonna be happy do you think he and bruce and selena are gonna hang out I don't know. I don't think so. I don't know if this is actually in the movie, but I always pictured him just getting up and paying the bill after that and sort of walking away and just letting it go, going back to Gotham. He says in his in his fantasy of, of seeing him there that they don't they don't speak, they just see each other and, and that's it. Maybe this is the ultimate Nolan-esque ending of a film, because I think in the grand scheme of most of his movies, and the movies that are uniquely his, so take out the following, or what the fuck was that movie? Not following. Well, following, yes, but... Oh, Insomnia? The Pacino one. Yes, thank you, Insomnia. Jesus. Like, all of his movies have endings that he implores you to not think too hard about, despite the fact that everyone will. Um, and maybe that's a fault, uh, largely the fault of, of himself. But I think, you know, people could kind of look at Memento and be like, what happens to Lenny next? And his answer is, well, who cares? How does this make you feel? And then it's like, well, what happens to Batman at the end of the Dark Knight? It's like, well, who cares? How, how does that make you feel? And in fact, when I went back and looked at some of the threads from around that time, as I mentioned, I did in that Dark Knight episode, so many people were asking me, like, would that really have killed Harvey Dent? Is Two-Face dead? Is Two-Face coming back? And like, the answer is, who cares? How does that make you feel? The prestige. It's like, what happens when the cops find 25 identical corpses in that fire? Uh, who cares? How does it make you feel? Inception especially is the most literally saying, like, is he or isn't he in the dream? Is the top wobbling? Is it falling down? Who cares? How does this make you feel? This is an emotional study. What do you feel? Don't worry about the answer. And this does two of those, both with Alfred and, God, I can't believe how many people I heard at the time being like, Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character not a ninja. He's not going to be a good Batman. Fucking, that's not the point. And I think, I think that would kind of be Nolan's answer to a lot of this and a lot of his endings a lot of his imagery and the last shots of his films are like kind of dopey but they serve the purpose of him wanting you to leave feeling like you've had an emotional experience and for better or worse whether you think it succeeds or whether it fails movie to movie I don't think Nolan is really asking you to present the answers to these questions in a overlong poorly narrated YouTube video I think it's just rhetorical emotional heartstring tugging that is like what Nolan is almost known for at this point I was I was about to say he doesn't leave anything up in the air at the end of Interstellar, but yeah, okay, yes. <laughs> <laughs> 
same fucking thing. I forgot how that ended for a second. I think in a weird way, the end of this movie gives fans a happy ending that they kind of deserve because these three movies are fun. They're well made. They're engaging. If you love superhero movies, they're like some of the best ever made, but they're also so dark and so bleak and not bleak in the way that like the new DCEU are where like it's all just like humorless and it's just like the most serious things in the world, but bleak in the way that like everything goes wrong and like they're just like literal and figurative monsters running around and each movie is almost somehow darker than the last and they started pretty dark and this movie, you know, apparently each of the three has a word that Christopher Nolan like used to inspire the film. Batman Begins was fear, Dark Knight was chaos, this one is pain. I mean, they're all like brutal, heavy topics and I think at the end, the fact that like Bruce gets a happy ending and Alfred gets a happy ending and that we have maybe a Robin and like Gotham is back to like where it should be and like Bane is dead and the Joker is dead and Two-Face is dead and there's sort of like a catharsis here that like we've just gone through eight hours in movie time or like eight years in movie universe time of like the most dark down 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 depressive shit and yet here we are at the end and our guys made it through and i like that it's weird because like all of the emotional beats actually worked well for me in this movie you know i was saying in inception how some of that kind of got lost in the mix for me but surprisingly maybe it's just my attachment to the sort of iconography of these characters but like to see batman get his ass kicked by bane on screen to see this great rendition of Catwoman like really done justice I mean the stuff with you know thinking Batman could do the ultimate sacrifice and him committing to that and they're in their uniforms and it's getting me worked up and it's really more fun than I remember or at least enjoying this more than I remember because I think I was the one who said early on where I felt like there was no fun in this one but there's a lot of it there there's still like the bat wing quote unquote but it's just called like the bat like that thing's awesome and amazing like I really like what Joseph Gordon-Levitt is doing in this movie and I totally love the end whatever's coming next it's almost as if like the status quo has been like reestablished now and and a cycle has ended and we're on to like a new phase or something and it can be better it can be what now we've been through sort of the darkness perhaps the next incarnation of batman will do things a little differently and you know things will go a bit better and that's how it's supposed to be like just every batman will do it better and better and better until you know hopefully eventually we won't ever need to get to batman beyond <laughs> that far in the future which is awesome in its own right and which i actually thought this movie was gonna do but i'm really satisfied by the end of the this movie much more so than I recall. You kind of need to have a happy ending for Bruce Wayne slash Batman and sacrificing himself for his city is fine and a possible ending for a different trilogy though. This trilogy really has made a point and if you want to read this as Batman canon critique which I think is a valid reading of this trilogy and film then I don't think Batman can die because he's so linked. He's in the DNA of Gotham and vice versa really. They are in intrinsically connected. What happens to one happens to the other. So I, I think there has to be some glimmer of hope for Batman slash Bruce Wayne or it's implied that there's no hope for Gotham and in the end this movie explicitly states there is. I think no one goes out of his way honestly to not have that question be out there despite the fact the internet will always make that question be out there. Like for example again going back to Inception which we did last week he specifically casts different actors to play the children in his visions and at the end of the film Michael Caine 
Bane's never in a dream. He's there at the end. Here, like, there's the scene where it expressly states, and there's no fucking dream logic here, that the autopilot on the Batwing was fixed. I think Nolan is pretty explicit in these quote-unquote questions because they're there as emotional symbolism. They're not there as make the fucking cinema sins about it. Like, people miss the point because it's the it's the internet and you have to have something to argue on forums about. But I, I don't think Nolan is going for these things and I think it's pretty clear. But it's just sloppy because Nolan shoots for your heart first before he shoots for your brain. Yeah, and I think it's totally keeping within his style. I think we've even mentioned a few times, like, you don't necessarily need to dig deep in a Nolan movie to enjoy it. And here I think he's saying, I'm not going to go deep. I'm going to make everything sort of superficial or shallow or whatever and then prove that I can still pull it off or at least it's not as good as when I do all that other stuff to it but I can get by without that like I could make a movie without that stuff like this is again like chronological you know there's really not all that much jumping around in time or anything like that and it's for the most part as far as Nolan movies are concerned like rather straightforward and very simplistic guy takes over the city gotta stop the guy if you're down with that it can be kind of refreshing to a degree like the idea that you think you're watching a movie that's about more than it really is maybe or that like fuck it like you can it can just not be about anything it can just be a fun batman movie or you know if you can do that then you can enjoy it well one thing i enjoy about this movie and this is my way to transition back into what i wanted to talk about before i enjoy anne hathaway which a few months ago on The Contenders, they covered Ocean's 8, and I remember I was messaging Tobin and Eisen, I was like, Anne Hathaway is an absolute delight and a treasure in this movie, and Eisen, not a big fan of Anne Hathaway. And what I found in the last year or so is that I really, really like Anne Hathaway, and I think she's great in this movie, and she's got this way of, like, balancing emotions, and I think it's perfect for the character of Selena Kyle, like the way that Christopher Nolan, Jonathan Nolan, and David S. Goyer have written her, in that she's, like, so genuine and so so sincere and so empathetic and then she gets called out on her bullshit and she just drops all that artifice and you see the real her underneath. And I feel like that's a very complicated thing to play and to demonstrate and to express and I think it's perfect here. She's just so perfect. It's perfect. And, you know, I just love her in this movie. I love the way that she and Christian Bale bounce off each other. Knowing what happens, knowing that Marion Cotillard's character eventually turns evil, you want him with Catwoman the entire time. You want him with Selena Kyle because she's never actually called Catwoman. She's just called, like, the cat burglar in the newspapers or whatever. The word Catwoman I don't think is ever said in this movie. But, like, all movie long, I'm like, no, just get with her. Like, she's the one that you want to get. Well, like, just forget about Marion Cotillard. Like, I know she's beautiful. I know whatever. But, like, Selena Kyle's the one that you want. And, like, I'm just, like, shipping them together. And eventually the fact that they get together at the end, and I just love it and I love her and let's just talk about how great Anne Hathaway is for the next like hour and a half. You should be reading the comics right now because I think they're engaged. Oh, they're married and that author has bodyguards because he got so many death rats so he's got bodyguards at Comic-Con because nerds should all be thrown into a pit. I mean, as much as I want that to last, it's just, they can't last, you know? But let them have their fun. I don't give a shit about Batman and Catwoman in general. I just like the Batman and Catwoman in this world. That came, that came off harsh. Like, I just love Anne Hathaway. Like, I don't, I don't care one way or the other about Catwoman. I love this Catwoman. Look, but Catwoman and Batman have been, will they, won't they, in every incarnation. The 66 movie has this. The Batman Returns has it. Arkham City has it. The fucking comic books obviously have it all the time. Like, this is not new. It's like, intrinsic to their characters is that they have a thing and that Selena Kyle is like gray versus Batman's just like lawful good. She's still good though. She's just like a neutral or a chaotic good. 
I didn't know people weren't down with Anne Hathaway. Like, I saw some article where it's like, we can like Anne Hathaway now. I was like, where did... Oh, yeah, after Ocean's 8, yeah. I was like, where did that come from? I've never seen a good argument for the dislike of Anne Hathaway that wasn't steeped in either misogyny or the fact that she's got her main start in Disney movies. I've never seen a good argument for it. I don't remember what the defense was because it broke my heart and it made me sad. Not really. But Iceland had a reason. On the contenders, Iceland had a reason why she didn't like Anne Hathaway. I think it's something about that she's so genuine, that, like, she is so excited and basically kind of, like, living, like, the real world in a way, like, manic pixie dream girl life, that she's, like, so happy, and, like, rightfully so, that she's blessed. I think that's the argument. I think. I don't like it, but I think that's it. I can't articulate it because I don't know it and I don't feel it, but I'm pretty sure Aislinn articulates it on The Contenders episode for Ocean's 8, so if you want to go check that out, check that out. I've heard a similar concept, and if look, if you want to hate her for, I think she was in a relationship with someone who was like a skeezy banker and did some kind of Ponzi bullshit that she didn't know about, okay, sure, um, I guess. But like, I've, I've heard that too. I've heard that like, oh, but she seems like she cares so much about like, acting. It's her job. Like, the alternative is getting fucking Hunger Games. Jennifer Lawrence, who goes on talk shows, is like, huh, yeah, whatever, I'm a millionaire, like, this is dumb, but I'm just doing these movies anyway. <laughs> Like, what would you prefer? And if the answer is that, then, like, fucking enjoy it. Sorry if I prefer someone who gives a shit about what they're doing and is actually pretty good at it. And also, just real quick, as a side note, Jennifer Lawrence auditioned for the Juno Temple role in this movie, which is bananas to me, considering that Winter's Bone and what was that Charlie's movie that we did, Mike? The fire, the trailer on fire. Burning, Burning Plane. That she auditioned for the Juno Temple role in this movie as Selena Kyle's psychic and didn't get it is bananas to me, but that's what it is. Maybe too big at that point. I think on the Inception episode, we already talked about that being nominated in the same year as Winter's Bone. So yeah. Jennifer Lawrence maybe is a little too uh, too much of a name for that role at that point. No disrespect to Michelle Pfeiffer's portrayal, but I feel like Anne Hathaway, like this is one of the roles she was born to play. Like she just exudes confidence and sexuality and until she doesn't. And then she's all vulnerable. And it's a really interesting performance because of the character. Like she really makes me believe that Catwoman is real. Like this is a real legit, like solid characterization. She sounds the way I imagine Catwoman and, like, moves the way I thought she would. And, like, when she's dressed up as the maid and does a backflip out the, you know, second-story window, it's, like, perfect. It's like, yes, I'm so glad that this is happening. I love that one. And when she's in the bar and goes from kicking the shit out of a bunch of dudes to the cops busting in and her screaming, like, she's just, like, a, a drunk girl in a bar and needs to be saved. It's the most convincing thing I may have seen in a movie in recent memory in, in years because she flips so quickly and so naturally multiple times throughout this movie. She's fantastic. She makes me actually think that the trope of like the thief with the heart of gold, she genuinely makes me think that maybe this version of it doesn't actually give a shit, which, you know, of course she does. And she's the deus ex cat woman at, at the very end. Save the cat woman? It's not even really a deus ex cat woman, but she just, she just swoops in at the end and does the thing that Batman couldn't do. And it works so well. And I, I think other people could have done this role. I don't think they could have done it as well. And specifically because of those scenes where she flips on a dime. She's really the main source of levity in this movie, which it desperately needs because it's dark all the way through. She also bridges the gaps between the, the Punch Man superhero stuff and the world of Gotham in a lot of ways because she is in and of that 
99% that may or may not exist in, in the semiotics of Nolan verse. And I think she gives as transformative as a performance as anyone in this entire franchise does. She's just not covered in a leather mask or in grease paint. So the credit isn't there because you can still see Anne Hathaway at all times. Plus the goggles being flipped up to be cat ears is a stroke of brilliance. Oh, I, I wrote that down. I was like, that makes me so happy. That makes me so happy. It's really good. Here's the list of people who auditioned for her. And then there's two, there are two other finalists along with Anne Hathaway. You ready for this? Natalie Portman, Kira Knightley, Kate Mara, Gemma Arterton, Jessica Biel, Blake Lively, and Charlotte Riley, who I don't know, but was Tom Hardy's fiance at the time. And so then after the initial audition process, Anne Hathaway, Jessica Biel, and Kate Mara all screen tested, and ultimately Anne Hathaway won the role. But my favorite casting story, and it wasn't this, she thought it was this, was that she was so excited that she so wanted to be Catwoman, she so wanted to be Selena Kyle, that like she was apparently with her agent, and she got a phone call, and I guess the way that he answered the phone or she answered the phone was so enthusiastic that like she just ran around the room saying I'm Catwoman I'm Catwoman and then her agent was like no they just want you to host the Oscars <laughs> and so like she was just like so ready for like the call which I guess she eventually got but I just love that like she just that's I think the definition in a sentence like why people hate her that like she's so enthusiastic about playing this but like yeah like I want someone who's like into playing Catwoman be excited about it meanwhile fucking like Christian Bale in the same movie gets all of the credit in the world for harming his body putting on or taking off 90 pounds every every other week or like Daniel Day-Lewis fucking becomes a character or Heath Ledger takes too many pills in the, the pursuit of the Joker like all this genuine stuff in men is fine but like someone who's really excited about their role and they're a woman hmm I don't know why do we hate this person uh, gosh I can't figure it out internet and it's even more so because like she's the only one really here I mean Marianne Cotillard is there but she's not involved in a lot of the action stuff you know she's the love interest for the most part it's a bit of a misdirect but that's what we're led to believe and so Catwoman's sticks out even more between not just two guys but Batman and Bane for Christ's sake like a guy who's like two guys in one let me heap two more compliments upon Anne Hathaway then we can move away from her onto Bane because I do want to talk about Bane for a while Anne Hathaway there was one line where she's in the maid outfit and she goes and steals the pearls and Bruce is doing his whole thing where he's just like oh like I recognize those pearls but I couldn't possibly be those pearls because they were in the safe and the safe is uncrackable and just the way that she says oops no one told me it was uncrackable I'm just like oh that's so good like she's just like her coy, if you will, catty nature is just an absolute delight. And then, this really doesn't have to do with her, but people were asking after the movie wrapped if that scene at the end where Alfred sees Bruce Wayne and Selena Kyle in that like little cafe area, if that was real or if that was a dream, like if he was just like seeing what he wanted to see or whatever. And this is a quote from Michael Caine, and I just love it for one line in here. Uh, he says, they were there, they were real, there was no imagination, they were real, and he was with Anne Hathaway, the cat lady such an old man line. So I just love that Michael Caine has played Alfred in three movies, but in this interview doesn't give a shit enough to remember that she plays Catwoman and just calls her the Cat Lady. Like, I saw that and just cracked up. Like, I think that's so funny that he's just like, oh yeah, those like stupid movies that I did or whatever. Like, I'm sure he loves the movies and obviously loves working with Christopher Nolan, but just the fact that he called her the Cat Lady, it made me so happy. Yeah. I, I feel like I scooped that transition into Bane on you like a fucking half hour ago. Do you want to talk about Tom Hardy? No, let's do that. Let's talk Bane. 
So Tom Hardy thought, apparently, according to IMDb, again, grain of salt, whatever, thought that Christopher Nolan wanted him for this movie because of Bronson. But Christopher Nolan's like, no, I never saw Bronson. I wanted you because of Rock and Rolla, which is the Guy Ritchie movie. So I think that's sort of funny that Tom Hardy's like, oh, of course he wants me for this movie for Bronson. And then Christopher Nolan's like, no, not like not at all. Like, just a different movie. But like, I just think that's kind of cool, kind of interesting that like Tom Hardy can be so dynamic or good in multiple movies that he and Christopher Nolan can be like, oh, yeah, I'm perfect for this role because of this other movie. And they can be talking about two different things. I don't quite remember him in Rock and Rolla, but he's lucky that I guess he's a big dude in that too, because he bulked up pretty big for this. So he's lucky in that regard. I remember hearing a story that when uh, Christian Bale was hired for Batman, he was told to get big, and then he showed up and he was too big, and so he had to like slim down real quickly. So that could always be, you know, a little a little hazardous to your job. Bane as a whole like works for me because I think because the rest of the movie works. <laughs> I think his plot. And his schemes rely on, as I refer to in uh, in The Dark Knight, some of the characters just happen to have the script. Bane happens to be reading the script throughout a lot of this movie. He just knows things for no reason and knows stuff that's going to happen and knows how to make his extremely ridiculous plot go off just so. And it's pretty stupid a lot of the times. And his voice is like mixed extremely dumb. Like he's way too loud for the rest of the mix of the movie. And it's not off-putting in like a good way. It's off-putting in like a take-you-out-of-the-universe-of-the-movie way. But all of that said, I think Bane works if you want to read it as a reaction to the entire history of Batman. This Bane works just fine in being the catalyst for the maybe unnecessary Bruce Wayne Batman redemption arc that this movie contains in and of itself. And he's fine as a mascot for the Occupy Wall Street symbolism and he's intimidating as hell and there's specifically a scene that i think is fantastic he works he's fine but like let's not pretend it's not goofy as hell the character originally is pretty goofy you know like i quite like the chain he's a luchador (laughs) he was born in prison raised in prison experimented on in prison with the venom serum you know and then he injects himself and he sort of roids out he like has these chemical steroids which make him Wait, like the other Tom Hardy Venom serum? I forgot that's a movie. That's a whole other thing going on. That's, yeah. But it is called Venom, and yeah, he wears a luchador mask, and he's from South America, so like, Christopher Nolan, like, totally switched him up and changed him around, but I feel like the essence is still there, because he's a menace to Batman, he's smarter than Batman, he's stronger than Batman, and in this version, he is like prototype Batman. Like, this is the guy Raja Ghoul was working on before Bruce, and he was like, I've kind of screwed up with this dude, there's too much of a emotional attachment to my daughter. He's sort of too much of an extremist even for the League. He's got to be excommunicated. I got to find someone else to take over Gotham. I'll go to Bruce Wayne. So I like all of the changes made to him and the things kept about him and just this, yeah, this amalgam sort of version of him. And I I do like how he is injected into sort of the um, like expanded universe of this of Nolan Batman, you know, because this is this is another thing that I feel like part three's a good part three will will sort of flaunt this, but it will go back into the first movie and sort of find moments it can explore deeper. And in this case, it takes one line from Rajah Gould telling Batman, like, I had a love of my life once that I lost forever or something like that. And and that's like a lot of this movie is built upon like that one little notion. Uh, so I, I really enjoyed that. I, I liked where that was all coming from and I liked how it panned out. I want to hear what Chris's 
terrifying scene is. There's one thing he does in this movie that I think is scarier than anything that any Batman villain, including the Joker, has ever done as an individual moment. I mean, obviously the Joker is better as an entire character, but it's it's subtle and it's good. And go back and watch the big fucking Sharks versus Jets fight when the cops come and beat up all the Occupy protesters and mace them in the face while they're sitting down and all that shit. There is the first moment... When he knocks one of the, I don't know, like the anesthesia injectors or whatever it's supposed to be off of his face, Tom Hardy, in just physicality and mannerism, he fights exactly like a wounded animal does. And it is sudden and it's eccentric and it's violent and it's terrifying. And honestly, I think it's the best physical piece of acting in a Nolan movie to date and one of my favorites of all time. It's entirely in how he does it. And it's so fucking intense. It's just utterly perfect. And I think it goes by very quickly. But go back and just watch that scene when he gets it knocked off of his mask. It's so good. It's so perfect. Like at the end where Batman knocks it off his face? Yes. The the first time when they're fighting on the stairs, he punches him once and the thing pops off and he goes into full rage mode and it's so good. He ends up pummeling the pillar too after that, right? Like yes. he's in yes. such a rage and he's doing like these body blows and Batman like somehow countered that at some point and Bane just kept going forward. It's like, I'll just hit whatever's in front of me at this point. I mean, I find Bane, to be quite honest, I find him pretty terrifying uh, throughout the whole movie. There's just something, the juxtaposition or the contrast between this voice and this look. I mean, I know the voice is enhanced and he's wearing a mask and it's, you know, he's got a, like a kind of a Vader thing going on with it and everything. But it just, again, like, I feel like conventionally they would have gone with more of like a Batman voice for Bane. But Batman's got that voice. So you sort of go with the opposite and you go with like a high-pitched voice instead and stuff. And so it's just really, yeah, I mean, eccentric is a good word to explain his fighting, but it's also just a, a good word to explain Bane in general, just like his design, I feel, too. And, and that's working for me. The stories, the IMDb trivia, the IMDb lore of Tom Hardy becoming Bane are all cool. And I think they all add to this mystique, this like presence he has on screen, like what Chris loves about him, what Mike was talking, like just everything. Like he agreed, apparently, again, I say so many things so declaratively and definitively like, oh, this is exactly what happened. Again, don't know anything, just read it on the internet, so maybe he's wrong. But agreed to do the movie without reading the script because he's like, yeah, I want to be Bane. And then he knew, because Renault was like, you're going to have plenty of time to, like, gain weight for the role, to study all these different kind of fighting styles. Like, he just did all these crazy, you know, intense things. I never, like, I knew he got big for this role, but I never really appreciated how big he got until there's one scene in this movie where he's fighting Batman before he breaks Batman's back, and, like, he knocks Batman off the ledge, or Batman jumps off the ledge or whatever, and then he just, like, goes down to fight Batman, and he, like, shimmies down a chain, and you can just see the muscles in his arm, like, rippling, and I'm like, holy, like, that's a big guy. Like, I feel like if he didn't have the vest on, you would be like, oh my god. But the fact that he's, like, contained, essentially, that you only see his arms, it's kind of hard to gauge how big he got, but I think he gained, like, 30 pounds, probably mostly muscle to play this role and he's just big he's just big there's the one scene in the sewers where the guys bring gordon in front of him and he's in like his little i don't know they're like camping out in the sewers and stuff and he doesn't have his shirt on and you kind of see like the big scar on his back and when he gets up yeah like he is imposing as all hell like he looks like 
you know, it's funny that the character in the comic is a luchador fighter because he looks like a wrestler. Like, he's got the build. Like, it's not like he's cut or defined or anything. He's just like a mountain, you know? Like, I just think of, like, this guy entering the ring and, like, everything just parting for him. And, you know, his ring music is that chant that comes like, dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun-dun. And, like, here he comes. Like, I definitely feel the physical, imposing nature of Bane, certainly from that scene on. I mean, he's got a, quite an entrance with the awesome IMAX airstrike that he orchestrates in the beginning. Yes, which I also did not remember. We were talking about before we started recording that that's Littlefinger. That's Tommy Carcetti from The Wire in that scene. Actually, I wanna, just real quick, just a quick detour. I want to run down all the people who I apparently have come to know after I saw this movie in theater. So we got Tommy Carcetti, Aiden Gillen. We've got Ben Mendelsohn, who... Bane snaps his neck. We've got Juno Temple as Anne Hathaway's sidekick. Ben Mendelsohn is my favorite suit in movies today. He's such a good capitalist fuckwad and, like, strict managerial guy in Ready Player One, in Rogue One, in this. Like, I love him as just a fucking snot-nosed shithead. He's so good. I love him for the opposite reasons. I love him for being, I guess not complete opposite, but like for being like the slime ball, sleazy, but like dirty, like just sort of like a wild card. Like him in Starred Up, which I don't know if either of you have seen. I think I might have talked to you about it, Mike, but like it's this like Australian prison movie where he's like, he's insane in that. He's in Animal Kingdom, the movie. I think he's crazy in that. In what's that show on Netflix, Bloodline? He's like a real wild card in that. He's in two Nick Cage movies, apparently. He's in Knowing, and then he's a wild card in... Uh... Trespass, which we did the commentary for, and I don't even remember. And also, another podcast that we're going to do, we're going to record by the time this is out, in Boyfriend Material, he's in The Place Beyond the Pines. He's Gosling's bank robbery partner. I do love that he can go from being sort of like a, a piece of shit, like, criminal, up to ostensibly the CEO of, like, the Elon Musk or whatever the equivalent is in Ready Player One, the Steve Jobs of Ready Player One. And he's he always makes you feel something. Like, he's either, like, slimy or snaky or, like, terrifying. He's great, and I love him i'm glad i'm so glad that he's becoming more not prolific but like more well known yeah i really think like he's gonna sort of shatter that character actor where if he's even in there i don't even think he is i think he's more unique than that but it's great that he can straddle these giant franchise movies like batman and star wars and stuff but then also have like this whole sort of indie career side that is just like entirely separate like they couldn't be more different than these types of movies and stuff yeah. i just seen ready player one and i expected to hate that movie and i kind of like it because it's it's a secret satire well, I like your take on it. I'm not sure if that was their take, but I like your take. So, Oh, well, I love that movie. Chris kind of loves that movie for different reasons. It's Spielberg's Starship Troopers. Go watch it. And Mike doesn't like that movie, so real wide range of opinions here on Cinemakers, which is what we all agree pretty much on all the Christopher Nolan movies, but Ready Player One could not be more different on. So then, okay, what else we got? We got Glenn Powell, who plays Dandy on Scream Queens, or plays Dandy on Scream Queens, but is also, I don't know his character name, but is the best part of Everybody Wants Some. Who's he in here? He is one of the guys getting a shoe shine, and he's talking about how he flipped oh. a coin, oh, and then <laughs> he's he goes into the stock exchange, and he's the one that Bane's slams his head into the desk. He's only in like a scene and a half. But okay. I was like, because I recognize his voice and he's again, like, you know, in Everybody Wants Him, he's got this like big bushy mustache and in Scream Queens, he's like this like really preppy but not like business suit dude. And here he's like got like the really like slicked hair and like the suit and kind of channeling a little bit of a two-faced sort of in a way, I guess. But, you know, he's 
completely different character, so I love him in this. Not in this, I just love him in general. He's fine, and he's whatever in this. And then there was one other one. Oh, uh, again, very, very small part, because Bane kills him like a scene later. Daniel Sunyata, who is from Rescue Me, but also I know him from Graceland. He is the guy, he's the captain. Like, he's the guy who comes in and meets Jim Gordon when they are, when Jim, like, when Gordon gets out of the hospital and is like, all right, it's going to be you, it's going to be me. Oh, the strike force? Exactly. He's the captain who comes in here and basically tells Joseph Gordon-Levitt to shut up, uh, and then he gets killed a scene later. That guy is like a pretty big-ish, at least in the world of TV, name actor. So all these people, I had no idea who they were six years ago when I saw this movie, and here I was just like, holy shit, that guy. Holy shit, that guy. Oh, Juno Temple. Oh, this guy. It was uh, revelatory to see. I don't know who the guy was who played Ben Mendelsohn's little wormy, like, second. His name is Bern Gorman, apparently, which does not sound like a real name, but he's not really in anything. But man, that dude has a face like a Dick Tracy villain. He's perfect to play that kind of character. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. He looks kind of like another actor who's in, like, the uh, Pacific Rim movies as, like, a scientist. Oh, it is him? Oh, my gosh. No kidding, because he couldn't be acting more differently. That's amazing. I didn't even... Okay. I was like, oh, it just looks like that guy, but that is him. Cool. We talked about in Dark Knight, Nestor Carbonell and his extremely beautiful eyes. Oh, yeah. He gets taken out in this one. Oh, we also have... First time in this movie, second time as a Doctor and a Christopher Nolan movie, Thomas Lennon. Tom Lennon, that's right. Oh yeah, that's right. Yep. That's so funny. Mr. Wayne, I cannot advise you to go hella skiing. I guess that's like skiing, jumping out of a helicopter? I don't know. Like, I don't think it's H-E-L-L-A. No, it's not It's not just skiing in Los Angeles or whatever. Hell-A. We also get a uh, Cillian Murphy return uh, in a role that, I know this was this movie wasn't even a twinkle in the eye of Christopher Nolan when he was writing The, the Dark Knight, but man, it just, it really just does seem like that role, making quips and saying like, oh, uh, death or exile, death by exile, like it just, it just feels so jokery. It's like they just had him do that because fuck it, like God, it just seems like that would have been where the Joker fits in in this movie. It doesn't seem like a Scarecrow kind of moment, even though it's really cool. I almost expect the Scarecrow to like gas people, like they're standing in line for judgment and he's like, all right, gas them. And then they just like go release them out into the streets, like all insane and stuff. Like the plan was from the first movie almost and like weave that back in a little bit. It's still cool though. I'm really glad that there's something there that we have another villain. It's kind of funny how Bane is just like allowing it all too. I really like that about Bane where he's like, I only bring the city to its knees. What it does from there on is up to the city. If you're strong enough to take it back, then prove it. He's like, I'll allow it. (laughs) I also do love the return to the Descartes slash Rosh al Ghul Bruce Wayne sword fight and the idea of um, seeding your ground due to the thin ice, like the walking on the ice being how he returns to Gotham, I think was kind of cool little subtle full circle kind of imagery that Nolan put in there that I really enjoyed. I want to go back to the courtroom scene with Scarecrow as the judge, jury, and executioner, apparently. I noticed it, but I didn't think about what it meant, but he's got the, like little tufts of like thread coming out of his shoulder. Like, I guess that's that's supposed to apparently mean or symbolize the straw. But in the back of the courtroom, which I didn't see, which I want to rewatch, or maybe I had noticed in the past but didn't catch this time, Bane is sitting in the back row one time just knitting? No way. That's terrific. <laughs> he's, he's definitely looking on at one point, but knitting, that's pretty hilarious. And apparently that's a reference to some character in A Tale of Two Cities, which this is also, in a way, based upon. 
I just love being knitting in this movie. That's awesome. That's incredibly cool. You know what the uh, courtroom scene also reminded me of, and especially at this point in the movie when like Gotham has been sort of cut off from the rest of the world, I got like a bit of an Escape from New York vibe at this point. I was like, oh, this is kind of like we're down to just like that level now, but through the uh, gaze of Nolan, like this is almost like his version right now of Escape from New York. It's pretty crazy. <laughs> And in, in talking about Nolan going maybe too big, as is one of my big critiques of him, what you just said reminded me that the passage of time in this movie does not feel in any way sensical or natural. Um, and it, it leaves you feeling confused in a way that maybe would work for Inception or The Prestige or Memento, but doesn't feel at home here. It must be at least nine months. Yeah, they say six at some point, and I was like, six months? Wow. Other than snow, there's really nothing to mark the passage of time, um, other than the thing, he was just like, oh, it's been, it's been eight years since he got sad about his girlfriend being blown up. But other than that, there's nothing that really implies how the training montage, which I hope someone has, like, recut this to fit an 80s montage song, because that stuff in the Lazarus pit could absolutely work with that in a really funny way. But, like, there's just no concept of how long he was down there and how long Gotham has been fucked. So I feel like that maybe is one of the worst things. Well, how long does it take you to unbreak your back? a long fucking time. Well, they imply that it's just a slipped disc, I guess, but even then, it's still extremely stupid. Well, you said vertebrae, which sounds more painful. Yeah, it, none of it really makes sense. You usually have to reconstruct that or fuse those together. It's not good. It's it's pretty dopey. Again, doesn't matter because it's a comic book movie, but it seems like for such a big idea, it feels like he's gone for a week and then all of a sudden there's a countdown timer on this bomb. And there needed to be something that showed that passage of time and that desperation of the people of Gotham better. It just feels like everyone gives up overnight. Another way that Nolan shows that he doesn't get politics is as good as the chase is, the Wall Street scene is really dumb. And the fact that it makes Bruce Wayne like bankrupt is extremely stupid because you know that every single rich person in the goddamn world would be calling for like a rollback of that day of the stock market. No person with any kind of money would just be like, yeah, no, that's that's fine. We're going to let that day go. We're going to say that one went well. I think there was a quick line saying, like, we're going to have to deal with this for now, but they're going to try and reverse this. That's when Alfred goes away wherever he goes, and Lucius comes to the house, and, and Bruce opens the door for him. He's like, opening your own door. Shows him the newspaper. He's like, you know, eventually this will all be fine, but for now, good luck, bud. But that's, like, the least of his problems, like, in that stretch of the movie. Like, he loses Alfred. He loses his money. He loses all of his toys. He loses all of Wayne Enterprises. Like, he loses everything, essentially, before he gets it all back with the love of a good woman. I hear you, Chris, about, like, the time thing, because that's something that, like, I really like about Christopher Nolan movies is that he is sort of mastering time in a way you know like using editing and storytelling and manipulating time in all these very interesting and like entertaining ways and then here we are at a linear film like the story is told straightforward and he's jumping too far ahead one thing that really sort of throws me about the time is like the idea that these cops are trapped in the sewers it's like well how long have they been down there have they been down there this entire time or did it happen like halfway through being siege or was it actually the day that he took down the football field it is kind of weird and i think it is one of the sort of faults of this movie is that even though he's telling it beginning middle and end and he's not jumping around in time he doesn't quite convey time properly or accurately in a way that is like easy to follow i think that's like true of not only time but also 
space in a way. And this is not exactly what you're talking about, but I think it also kind of comes into the same or comes from the same place where they want to tell this like really grandiose story, but might not exactly know how to convey it or whatever. But they filmed The Dark Knight in Chicago and they basically apparently filmed like all of Chicago to do that movie. So they filmed most of this one in Pittsburgh. Shout out Joe 2. Shout out all the Joe 2 podcasts on the network. Oh my God, he would be so sad if his entire football team fell into a pit. I know. Well, he, yes, he would be. Also, side note about the football team, did you know, he told me this, the guy who's the kickoff guy for the team is the mayor of Pittsburgh at the time, Ravenstahl, and he is in his jersey. It says Ravenstahl on the back, and he kicks off to Heinz Ward, who is never going to be the one returning kicks, who returns the kick for touchdown to the death of the other 21 players in the field. I think Roethlisberger's there for the national anthem. Like, the, the Steelers were that team. Exactly. But they filmed most of this movie in Pittsburgh because they wanted to give the sense that, like, Gotham was, like, this massive, massive city. And because they had filmed so much of Chicago, they wanted to film, like, a different city in this movie. And it feels like, sure, that's cool, but at the same time, I don't know that you necessarily, like, I don't know that that's how you accomplish that. You know what I mean? They want to have the story that spans time, and they don't necessarily line things up there. And I don't know if you need to film just a completely different city, because I think there's, again, things I don't really care about, but, like, wait, like people criticizing the geography of Gotham City but how it's part New York part Chicago part Pittsburgh and like if you laid it all out it wouldn't make any sense I like that they went for this really ambitious huge massive city but at the same time I don't know if you necessarily need to do that I don't think Gotham has felt the same in any of these movies, despite Gotham being a a major and important character throughout all of these. I don't think there's any consistency. Yeah, I agree. And I think that is actually a positive thing. I think it helps sort of make them feel a little more self-contained. It's not like I was looking around going, oh, they never rebuilt the monorail. They totally just, they don't care. And that's what I sort of meant about the continuity between them and how that's sort of refreshing. And I think that gives them their own stamp. But I also agree that there is sort of a, yeah, there is a little more of a problem with the direction of geography in this film as opposed to others. And maybe it has something to do with the fact that he's not jumping around as much and he can't just reorient himself all the time like any way he wants. Like he actually has to consider establishing shots and close-ups and he has to get a little more conventional, I feel, than he might have in previous films. I mean, he did it in the Batman movies, but I also feel like he's trying to go for something a little different this time around. It just feels like he doesn't have as much room to play around with this one and it might be sort of confining him a little bit artistically when it comes to that aspect of the movie, but it's still okay. It doesn't get on my nerves at all. I just like it because each Gotham does feel a little different. And before Bane turns it into Mad Max, like, this is the most hopeful that Gotham City has been. So I think it kind of fits... I think the look of the city at the start fits kind of the masquerade that Gordon has put on. So Chicago is such a dark version of Gotham, and the Batman Begins one was almost like this gothic Blade Runner version of it. And so this maybe makes the most sense for it to seem its most Metropolis-esque before it's, it's brought down to what Bane does. So that could be where some of the necessity came from, as well as the need for shots of a city on a river with multiple bridges, because there's not too many of those, and New York's a little too obvious. I don't hate it. It's just Gotham doesn't feel consistent, and that's okay. That's okay. Can we talk about Joseph Gordon-Levitt? I don't love him here. I think he's fine. I don't love the character. I like him as this upstart 
you know, not rookie cop, but like, because he's a detective, but like this, like, really, because like, he is sort of, he's kind of Jim Gordon before he broke bad. Like, he's kind of the Walter White to Jim Gordon's Heisenberg. Like, he is the past, the ghost of Gordon past this, you know, one good cop ostensibly in a city full of people who were either sheep or able to be manipulated or whatever. And I like that. I like his portrayal of that, but I don't know. It just feels convenient that he's always separate. Like, all the cops in the city go underground, except for the one that we know and the one that's in the hospital. You know what I mean? It's just like it's like the convenience of that. I do like him here. I think there's cool things like when he remembers the guy who was in the dump truck or whatever outside the bank, and then he does that like insane shoot with the truck that ricochets the bullet into the guy's back. Like that's crazy, and that's kind of weird and cool. Like that he's willing to do that or whatever. But I don't know that the character is necessarily strong. I just wonder if the scene at the end that we talked about, like where he is sort of like where he goes to pick up that paper or whatever, and the woman's like, oh, "I like your name. You should go by your full name, Robin." And it just feels like I don't know if he was there to be that like uplifting thing at the end or just because they needed like a young guy that like Gordon is now like in a way not evil but not the Gordon he was and they need like a new one of him like I'm not exactly sure what role he serves here other than sort of like Batman's little buddy which proto Robin I guess the way that I always took it was he's poor Batman like he is an orphan or he was orphaned at a young age but he was sent to an orphanage like he didn't have an Alfred and a mansion and privilege to grow up with so the best he could do was become a cop like he couldn't put a suit together or anything like that so I actually kind of quite like what they're doing with the character in parallel to Bruce and especially in him trying to find like an heir or something like that and I kind of still wish that they don't say the word Robin at the end because Nolan even said like he didn't really ever want to explore Robin on like any kind of in-depth level. Well, and apparently just real just real quick, Christian Bale said he wouldn't do the movies if Robin was in them. That's that's even crazier, but I guess they found a way to do it somewhat here. Now, everything that would have fixed it for me, like you didn't have to call him Robin. This character's name goes by Blake. My favorite Robin in the comics was Tim Drake. So if they had just named him Tim or Drake or something like that, like it's just weird how he's off by one letter. He ends up being a Robin. He's somewhat like named or based after like part of a Robin origin. I was just surprised they didn't go sort of like all in on that and have him actually suit up at some point or I mean Batman has a cool line where he's just like you should wear a mask and he's like I don't I'm not afraid of showing my face and he's like no to protect the ones you love and stuff and so I almost expected him to put on a mask before the end of the movie but I I don't know like I've been saying I'm cool with the way that Nolan is appropriating all of these characters and making them his own and doing that because that's sort of what they have to become like Batman is like a myth he's like you know they talk about the new god and stuff and like Superman, Batman, even like Captain America, Spider-Man, whatever. Like these characters have to change and evolve in order to be interesting and new and fresh and stuff. So I'm, I'm willing to go with this Robin who never puts on a suit and goes to just become Batman directly. Like he just kind of skips over that whole phase. He was a cop and he's just going to put on the cowl. So I was okay with it. I wish he got to do a little bit more than drive a school bus full of kids to the edge of a bridge and then potentially wait there to die. Like I wish, I wish it it felt like his arc had any kind of conclusion before him finding the Batcave. Like, him earning that in some kind of way would have maybe sat a little bit better with the character as a whole. I think he does a good job of, again, he plays the role just fine. I think it's it's the role that fails him instead of the other way around. I think he works as the guy who figures out 
He's just a jabroni who for some reason knows that Bruce Wayne is Batman, which softens the blow a little bit when it's just as it's slightly less dumb when Bane and having the script somehow knows it a little bit later. All these people just suddenly being like, oh yeah, it's totally, totally Bruce Wayne. It's pretty dumb, but at least a couple of people have figured it out instead of just one. Everything he does doesn't work, but I like him because I like Joe Gordon-Levitt. I, I, I'm trying to put something there for this character to be doing, and as I'm saying it out loud, I realize that he doesn't fucking do anything in this movie. He figures out Batman as Batman, or he figures out Bruce Wayne as Batman because he's an orphan too, I think. He should have been little Joffrey from Batman Begins. The one place I'll agree with the internet about this trilogy, he should have just been that character. Yeah. Wait, who? Who's little Joffrey? Joffrey from Game of Thrones, the kid who gets the, the bat computer in the in the narrows. Gives him like a one of those grappling guns or something. That was Joffrey? The actor, yeah. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay, okay, okay. That's why I was confusing. I was like, is there a character I just don't know? But okay. As much as Tim Drake, I think nerds know him maybe. I don't he's not one that I think of. Yeah, but all the more so to use, you know, someone that's unknown. I think the most famous Robin is probably Dick Grayson, right? But, like, you can't... I mean, my favorite Robin of all time is Carrie Kelly. Like, she is the best. She's my favorite Robin. Oh, you don't like Jason Todd? He's the one that gets the shit kicked out of him, right? He got his brains bashed in by the Joker. But it was was like a call-in thing on the back of a comic book, so, like, you would call an 800 number, and, like, if you wanted Robin to live, you'd press 1. If you wanted him to be killed, you'd press 2. And the overwhelming majority was to... Ice Robin. Wow, that was like that's like before that's like proto four chan. Yeah, you had to call in on eight hundred number off the back of a comic book. <laughs> but I want to take a sidestep from Blake in this for a second. Who knows that Bruce Wayne is Batman in this movie? So we have Gordon knows now. Tim Blake knows, or whatever his name is. Blake knows. Talia and Bane. Talia and Bane. Selena Kyle knows. Morgan Freeman and Michael Caine. That's a lot of people. Yeah. I like that. I like that it it's fine because, um, honestly, the, oh, no, what if people know my secret identity and then I'm a superhero and they're going to go after my friends got, like, really boring by about halfway through Spider-Man 2, the first Spider-Man 2. I'm over that shit now. Yeah, one of the things I actually really appreciated about Man of Steel was the idea that, like, they just call him Clark. Like, everyone calls him Clark. Even when he's Superman, like, Lois is yelling, Clark, like, in front of everybody, basically. Like, I'm cool with that. That's fine. Like, secret identities are a little overrated. Was there anything in the IMDb trivia about what arcs Nolan may have used or been inspired by to write the screenplay? It feels very No Man's Land. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. The Great Gotham Earthquake, right? That was originally when I stopped reading comics. <laughs> like the, After that arc, I was like, oh, I'm going to give it a rest for a while. In addition to the numerous elements from Nightfall, The Dark Knight Returns, and No Man's Land storylines, we also borrows from the legacy storyline, which involves Bane becoming Ra's al Ghul's successor and plotting with the League of Shadows to destroy Gotham City. The filmmakers cite Batman comics The Dark Knight Returns, where an aged Batman operates in the future Gotham, Nightfall, where Bane pushes Batman physically and mentally, causing him to burn out, and No Man's Land, Gotham descends into a post-apocalyptic gangland territory and is cut off from the rest of the U.S. as major influences on the film. There's just a bunch, like, I cut all those out because, like, I know some of the stories, but I feel like there's so many relations and like, especially in the first Batman movie, like links back to other Batman that it just sort of feels like you can do a whole podcast about like in jokes and like in references. You know what I mean? Like, I feel like that's like this whole other world. A Batman podcast? What would that be called? I know you want to do Bat Pod, but we're already doing Bat Pod. Like, I just want that name to be said out loud. That's all. Bat Pod. Two things that I've really loved in superhero movies. This happened recently. is exploring the aftermath of being a superhero. 
I like that this one goes a little bit in depth about how fucking battered he is. Like, his knees don't work, his hip is out of place. Like, how much that would, night after night, eventually wear your body to dust. I also like when the mental aspect of that happens in, I guess it's Iron Man 3, where he's got the PTSD from flying up into the giant space laser. But I like the exploration of, this takes a toll on the person in the suit. Because it's really easy to just ignore that and say, well, fuck it, they're cartoons. That's like what was cool. Like that's what I really liked about Dark Knight Returns is like you have old Batman. I think that's what the new Batman is supposedly going for, the DCEU Batman, which I like that Ben Affleck is not like they're not trying to make him look like a younger Batman. Like he's been Batman for a while. But he is super agile and stuff. Like he's doing stuff this Batman can't do. But that's I mean, that's a whole other ball of wax already. But like the setup or like the ideas behind what that Batman was going to be is what I want to see. Because those comics, like that storyline is cool because I love what you're saying, Chris. It's also the same thing with Superman. Like, Superman, like, as an old guy, like, just aging. Like, yeah, he's an alien that is impervious to bolts, but, like, in those comics, like, he's old. Like, he just is an old dude. And I like that a lot. And it is sort of here, should have been, could have been more in the newer movies, but just isn't. I like that he's broken, though, too, like Chris was saying. Like, Affleck's Batman's old, and sure, like, he's been around, but, like, he's in one piece. I was wondering, you know, I think in maybe it was Batman Begins, we talked about how much it would cost to be Batman in real life. I'm starting to wonder how long you could actually live if you went out three times a week, put on the cape, jumped around the city like that. It kind of starts to make sense why he isn't super... Super active. I think part of it could be that he just can't be active, that he's just not physically able to do it anymore. Yeah, that is pretty cool that basically we have like a whole movie where the hero like isn't in, you know, peak physical shape. Like he's not in fighting shape. It's almost like those uh, comic book movies where like, or in like Spider-Man 2 where he like lost his powers or something like that, but he gets them back at the end. Like it's almost as if Batman lost his powers, which he didn't really have any to begin with, but he had money and he had his strength and now he has no money and he's got less strength, so... I don't have any other notes about the movie. I have a few other quotes that I wrote down, but I'm going to skim through some trivia because there's a bunch more that I took that I haven't brought up yet. But are there any other like major points of the movie that we haven't talked about that we should talk about before we wrap up? I mean, we still got a lot to talk about, but like any other major things in the movie that we haven't talked about that we should? I remember nerds online getting really mad about Bane's death, but I mean, it just, it makes sense once he's outed as not being the actual head of the League of Shadows and just being muscle and just being kind of a face of this faux revolution. I think him going out like that kind of off screen getting blown away it makes total sense figuratively and literally i kind of like selena takes out bane with a rocket launcher because <laughs> she shoots and kills like 10 people in this movie with a gun in all these movies everybody's killing everybody except for batman like joker i think kills like 34 people bane kills a whole bunch i mean like aside from like the whole like stadium that he collapses like who knows what but, like just physically kills a whole bunch of people like everybody's killing everybody in these movies that for me i think is my scariest bane moment when he's having that public execution in the arena and he's like i've got the nuke and the only guy who knows how to stop it and i'm gonna kill him in front of everybody here that that worked for me i wasn't quite sure what else he was talking about there i do love the voice though i mean like the voice gets a lot of shit i give it a lot of shit from time to time i I use it jokingly talking to friends and stuff like that but like it's so memorable and truly unique and like i just feel like it actually works way more than it doesn't as much as i joke about the voice like i truly do think it kicks ass and 
I like that they went for something weird and it didn't quite work and then they fixed it or they quote unquote fix it. Like I remember in theaters and we were talking about this before we started recording, they like re-released at least an IMAX or maybe like just like an IMAX teaser, like that six minute thing that they showed before, they like redid his voice, the mixing better. But like I like that they were not only going for something but also flexible enough to be like, oh no, like we should probably fix this. Like I think that's like very self-aware that it's not like this like artist with a vision who's like, I won't let anybody tell me what I can or can't do but that he's willing to actually listen to people to me that's what you just said is is really a great descriptor of this movie as a whole i like that it's big dumb stupid sloppy ideas are paid off with big dumb sloppy visuals and comic book ideas whereas in the dark knight those big dumb ideas are paid off in like a really personal story and that dichotomy doesn't work with the two-faced harvey dent stuff that's what makes this movie a little bit more watchable as an entire movie for me but i mean you know the highs of the dark knight basically the joker batman stuff make that slightly better i think objective movie but i'd I'd rather watch this honestly even though it's bigger and dumber but sometimes it's fun. When I do my rankings, I think this will be back-to-back with The Dark Knight. I don't think there's anything between them. I think they run together uh, extremely well in a lot of ways, straight down to quality. It's just that one has a transcendent performance. That That's it. That's, that's really the only thing. If, if it didn't have that, if that had Jared Leto, if that had who the fuck else was up for that role, if that had Stuart Townsend, like, it's the worst one of the trilogy by far. Stuart Townsend. I, yeah, I, right now I have the three Batman movies as three, four, five. In what order is three, four, five? In the order that they came out. But I think they're all close. I think they're all like just depending on a moment's notice. Like I told you, like I didn't like the Dark Knight as much around this time around, but like the ending just got me in here. It just sort of caught me off guard by how much I liked it. One other thing I want to note, it happened at least on the Dark Knight also, maybe even Batman Begins, and I don't know if it's on every version or just the 4K Blu-ray, or maybe it's on all Blu-rays or what, but did you guys notice that there were changing aspect ratios? Yeah, so that happens whenever they switch to IMAX. It's jarring. Yeah, it can be. Yeah, it can be. You're right. There's sort of a lack of, like, synchronicity to the screen with that, but, like, I definitely noticed it most with this movie out of all of Christopher Nolan's movies. Like, it's not bad. It's just strange. And, like, I'm trying to, like, figure out, like, what is the benefit of shooting with IMAX? You can just, like, it's, I know they shoot the action in IMAX, but what's the actual benefit of doing that? It's the uh, it's the aspect ratio, I believe, and the projection quality as well with the camera. So okay. It's a couple factors. It's not just bigger. It's, like, I think it's also resolution and stuff, too. So I'm not that much of an expert on IMAX. Okay. So you guys ready for some trivia? This is the second movie in a row in which Marion Cotillard stabs someone. For that Marion Cotillard character, Miranda Tate, Ava Green, Naomi Watts, Rachel Weiss, and Kate Winslet were considered. <laughs> Again? Kate Winslet? Again. You know, we talk about her in Inception. Yep. Who was after Ava Green? Janie E., Naomi Watts. Oh, I don't love that. I like Rachel Weiss. I like Ava Green. Not too sold on the others. Ava Green is very much comic appropriate. Like, that's exactly who she looks like in the comic. Like, she's a very tall, sort of noir brunette. There was a period of my life where I didn't know the difference between Marion Cotillard and Monica Bellucci. Oh, well, they're both beautiful European women. I know, and they're both in uh, famous trilogies. Yeah, so there we go. They were all considered, but apparently Christopher Nolan wanted Marion Cotillard for this role so bad, I guess after 
shooting with her on Inception, that he offered it to her, and she was six months pregnant or something, and she said, I don't know if I can do it. He's like, no, 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 we're going to make this work. And he, like, juggled around shooting schedules or something, so she started filming, like, a month after she gave birth. He made room on set for her family to be there, and then while they were filming, she was also going, she started filming this movie, Rust and Bone, but that was filming in France. So she was flying back and forth between Pittsburgh and France for, like, a couple months, I think, maybe, or at least a couple weeks. And Christopher Nolan was, like, so impressed by it that he called her, quote, Superwoman, which I guess is sort of fitting for, you know, the subject matter or whatever. But, like, he wanted her and, like, made it work. And, like, she's goodness, but I feel like she's not in the movie a ton. She's good, but, like, is she worth all that trouble? I understand you love her as an actor and everything, and I love her, too, as an actor. But And she's great in this, but I feel like we could have gotten someone else to do this part and stayed on schedule or whatever. Yeah, it just seems like they moved the mountain for a strange reason here. Like, she's good, but, I mean, you know. Yep. But I also feel like maybe, I mean, there, there might be like that weird alchemy on set that like, maybe she's just an absolute delight to be around. Like I remember, I still remember, I don't know why I remember, but I remember her being on Conan one time and just being like an absolute delight on the talk show host. I mean, we're talking about Anne Hathaway as like, you know, the anti-Jennifer Lawrence and like Marion Cotillard here. Like maybe you just like want to work with people that you want to spend time with. You know what I mean? So I feel like that kind of makes me like Nolan Morris. Something that we haven't really talked about is Nolan as a person, which, we, you know, we don't know him. So all we can get is him from a series of interviews and things like that and, and stuff online but from what I've seen online like he's just really excited and happy to talk to anyone about filmmaking and his films even if it's just like scrub ass like places he's just like yeah I'll talk to you for 20 minutes about Memento like he just seems so excited to be there and I love that I love that he feels in some ways like one of us who made it like just a film nerd who done who done good and I feel I feel almost proud thrilled that's just such a nice guy got here with his his big dumb pretty movies there is something refreshing about that about a person who like understands that he's lucky or like he got to a place that a lot of people don't have these opportunities that he has and he's not going to squander them like that is nice to see someone who realizes the magnitude of his position or respects the trade to that degree too and is sort of keeping in that is in in a certain tradition of filmmaking as well is to i see it in scorsese too and guys like him and tarantino is just these are guys that just have to make movies love to make movies and want to entertain people with their movies and it's great that's what drives him and it's it, he's excited about it and the guy makes great movies i really i really liked his film so i'm really glad that he's doing this I could see a lot of people going to film school because they love Christopher Nolan and then being extremely disappointed as to what film school is. What I also love, and this is another thing, comparison between Nolan and Soderbergh, is that I think we might have talked about it, but I don't know that we actually talked about it sort of more at length, but like they both reuse people over and over again, right? So like it's another connection here. You have Clooney in a whole bunch of movies. You got Matt Damon in a whole bunch of movies. You got you know all these different people in a bunch of Soderbergh movies. And here, when we do the, the, the remake, how would you remake it with what Nolan regular? Like, now that we're in basically modern day, we can't do that as well. But there's, like, the four or five people that are in a bunch of his movies, like Michael Caine in, like, all of his movies. And it's he's excited to make movies, but he's also, like, loyal to the people who are good to him. And it's just, I, again, don't know him, like Chris was saying, but I'm glad that he has a success because he seems like a good guy who likes what he does and likes the people around him. Like, that's cool. More people should be like that. You know, every director isn't like that. Like, Scorsese feels like a, a funneled grandpa from interviews and things like that. Tarantino feels like a weirdo. I don't care one way or another. Foot fetish are cool, whatever. But then, like, you know, I don't want to shit on him too much because there was tragedy in his life or whatever. But, you know, Zack Snyder 
doesn't seem like a dude who like loves to talk about his movies or even loves his movies very much. Joss Whedon seems fucking insufferable when you listen to him talk. It's just going off comic book people alone. So it's, it's not... And also based on, you know, some stuff that uh, has come out about him. Well, sure, yeah. It's not everyone. There's some people who don't feel like... And maybe time will have its toll and in, in 10 years from now, Nolan will just be like, well, fuck it, I'm, I'm making movies still. Who gives a shit? But there's some people who just feel like they're really happy to be there despite having, you know, more money than the three of us will ever have combined in our lives. Like, I just... I'm, I'm really happy that some people don't forget where they came from. And, you know, Nolan just... Maybe it's projection because we've been talking about him so much and I've been watching so many of his interviews, but like, he just seems like he gets it. That he's the modern version of uh, Ringmaster at a circus, and he's he's happy to do it. That's not going to change how I feel about his movies one way or another, but cool, good. I'm glad there's someone who's having fun in this multi-million dollar hell world. <laughs> in terms of villains, it was rumored that the Penguin was going to be in here, and that it was going to be played by Philip Seymour Hoffman. I think everyone wanted that at that in 2011. But yeah. he quickly denied the rumor, saying that the character would have been difficult to adapt for his version of Batman, which I can totally see. There was also Robin Williams was rumored to play the role of Hugo Strange. Oh, that would have been pretty cool, actually. I don't know how, I mean, how he would have fit in this exactly, but that would have been a good villain for another movie, maybe. Like I mentioned on the last episode, the Inception episode, this is his first film since Insomnia, so five since then, including this one, to get zero Oscar nominations, so that's... That's fine. I'm not super offended by that. I feel like the fact that Dark Knight got any was a little bit of a, a blessing, sort of like how like um, Lord of the Rings got nods, but didn't really win anything beyond CGI or like costume stuff. And like they, they were waiting to give it to the last one. I feel like this was kind of like, we gave it to that one. You're good on this one. See you next time, Nolan. Yeah. The only other notes they have are about casting. I already mentioned that Jennifer Lawrence auditioned for Juno Temple's role. So did Chloe Grace Moretz. So this was post-Kick-Ass. Um, I think that would have been cool. But I also think, like, I like Juno Temple a lot, and I think that she's fine in this. I think that, it's not a huge part, but I think that she's good in this. I don't know who she is, but she's got lovely hair in this promotion picture on Letterboxd. She's great actor. Uh, and Joey, you must have been happy that she kept her clothes on in this movie. Yes. Like, <laughs> well, it's also PG-13, yeah. Yeah, we talked about... Chris, did you see Unseen yet or no? No, I want to watch it. But I've, I've seen Killer Joe. I've seen Magic Magic. I just don't specifically remember her being the person in them. She is the daughter in Killer Joe who's a little bit slow, and she's the one yeah. who oh, he kind nice. of, you know, forces her into a date with him, whole sketchy thing. And then in Magic Magic, she's like the main girl. Yeah, it's just that, like, I didn't recognize or remember specific actress well enough to, like, place her in those movies. Or those movies, really, honestly. I've seen her in a bunch of stuff. We talked about her because she's in Unseen. I've also seen her in, that I remember her in specifically, Afternoon Delight. She's great. Horns is that Daniel Radcliffe movie or whatever. And she's in the Brass Teapot. Like, I've seen her in apparently 13 movies. She's been in a bunch of things, but, like, she's known for, I think, always taking her clothes off and not really a spoiler, kind of a spoiler, not really, but for Unseen, like, it all, like, you're like, you're like oh it's not gonna happen and then it almost happens i was like come on like what are you doing but it you know uh but here not taking her clothes off so good on you juno temple but the only other note that i have is before joseph gordon love was cast as john blake three other actors were considered to play the role mark ruffalo who i think would have been pretty good because i like him in zodiac as a that kind of role a little too old though right for this agreed too haggard maybe yeah he's a great hulk but you wouldn't be able to do the Robin joke at the end of that with a guy who looked 
quite so disheveled. Also of note, because he was in the last movie, Leonardo DiCaprio. Same. Again, a little old. But the most important one considered for the role would have been not as good, but also I would have loved to see Ryan Gosling. That's acceptable, I suppose. I like what Joseph Gordlev is doing. Like, he just seems like a, you know, slick, honest cop with a good haircut, right? Like, he's, yeah, I really feel like he fits the role. He's a really good actor. He feels natural, so I really liked him as Philippe Petit when he walked on the tightrope, too, so check him out in, in that movie. It's pretty good. Robert Zemeckis actually put out a good one there. I need to rewatch, just looking at his movies, I need to rewatch Looper and see if that holds up at all. Fun story about Looper, after my sister and I saw that, she tweeted how much she liked him, because she had this, like, a, I don't know if she still has, but she still ha- she had a big crush on Joseph Gordon-Levitt it and she tweeted how good he was and he like this was before the days of quote tweeting but he did the inline retweet like this girl gets it or something and she like lost her goddamn mind <laughs> i mean speaking of people who are happy to be there and also giving back to other aspiring film industry people him just we're like a production company and he does a lot of stuff with up and coming hit record joe good for him another another guy who I'll support even if I think stuff like Don John was really bad. Oh, that, come on. That was kind of fun. I thought that, you should check out The Lookout. That was a really good sort of earlier one of his movies. And Hesher was also really great. Yeah. I, uh, I can't imagine he's great as Snowden. He's not bad as Snowden. He's not the problem with that movie. Okay. I also didn't like Hesher. I like him in Hesher, but I don't like Hesher. But he as Hesher and him, especially on Conan, thrashing and destroying a table. I got so many Conan stories tonight. And him thrashing and destroying the table on Conan as Hesher was great. Also, as Joseph Gordon-Levitt, another late night thing, the fact that he kind of sort of created or co-created Lip Sync Battle. Like, I don't know. Like, that show has become, in a way, like, it's it's mostly not bad, but it's mostly not, not worth watching. Every once in a while, there's, like, a great performance. But, like, the early ones on The Tonight Show with him and Jimmy Fallon and Stephen Merchant are incredible. Like, they're so good. Because it was, like, new, and they were doing, like, the biggest songs, and they're all just such showmen, and especially, like, he's just so good. And if you haven't checked those out, if you want to if you want to fall in love with a uh, little JGL, go watch our Tonight Show, Jimmy Fallon, Lip Sync Battle. I think we're also forgetting his Joker-esque Heath Ledger turn as Cobra Commander. Oh, my God. <laughs> I haven't seen it yet. Is that in, is that in G.I. Joe? Oh, it's so bad. Don John is, I think, another Channing movie. So we got a lot of JGL coming up on Magic Mike's. So, real quick, I only saw Conan O'Brien once, but I went to a Conan taping when he was in New York so during writer's strike. Oh. The guest that night, Donald Trump. Oh. So oh. it was a. My guest that night, show. not much better, Louis C.K. Oh. Rough week for guests. Well, at least at the time, your guest was better than my guest. True. Like, but now they're both terrible. Also, <laughs> in the crowd my night when I went were. John Stewart and Stephen Colbert. So that was kind of cool. And also at the end, again, such a tangent here, Conan went out to the audience, like, wave goodbye, and he used my shoulder to stand up on the back of our chair. And so, like, in the closing credits, you can see me and my sister there, like, right below Conan. My only other question here is how big of a motorcycle helmet do you need to cover up Bane's mask? <laughs> yeah, pretty huge one. But it's kind of funny how Batman uh, obviously doesn't need a helmet because he's always wearing a helmet. Uh, but I almost expected Catwoman to put a helmet on at some point in here. I'm really glad she got to drive the Bat Pod around. It looks like it belongs to her. It looks like it should be the Cat Pod.
I'm usually not the person who notices continuity stuff because I don't care unless it's like a hilarious boom mic in like the room or something like that. I just don't tend to notice this stuff. But there's something here that I, I feel like it almost has to be on purpose, whether it's just because he thought the aesthetics were cooler or because they cut out a bunch of stuff. After the Wall Street invasion or whatever, Batman chases them and it's broad daylight and they go into a tunnel and they come out and it's nighttime. Like, I almost feel like that has to be on purpose. Like, did any of you guys catch that? No. I don't know. I, get, I don't catch this stuff ever, but I caught this. It's interesting you say that. I actually got the feeling that he was trying to go from day to night throughout that sequence. Like, if you notice when the cops first show up or when Bane shows up there, it's like pretty broad daylight. And then when they come out of the place, it seems a little more like twilight hour or something, magic hour. And then, yeah, they come out of the tunnel. It's just pitch black out. So it does seem like maybe that sequence was supposed to be a little longer and do sort of like a T3 thing. It's actually, it's like the most successful part of T3 is when in the chase sequence it actually goes from night to day in that movie really well so but i think what makes that weirder is that both there's there's two different sequences in the movie and there's the one after the bank robbery where they're trying to or the the stock exchange heist where they're trying to get codes or whatever they're doing i don't know uh bruce wayne's fingerprint and then at the end, where there's the bomb that's about to explode, both of those are in real time. So, like, the one at the end, it's like there's, like, 15 minutes left on the clock or whatever. That sequence takes 15 minutes. And then when they leave the stock exchange, there's 90 seconds left to download, and that sequence takes 90 seconds. And so for there to be such specific attention paid to both of those scenes in terms of, like, the time it takes, I would feel like going from day to night is intentional, or at least they're aware of it, if that makes sense. I feel like maybe the visual of all of the sirens on the cop cars chasing the Batmobile at night were just better. Like, I don't, it just, it, it felt like it was whacking you in the face so hard with that transition that, um, it has to be on purpose. Um, I don't think it's a mistake. Uh, I just, I just didn't get if it was due to editing or if it was some symbolism that I, I was missing. I, I, I just didn't know. Throwing that out there right into the mailbag. Oh, and also speaking of night, I don't know if it's just this trilogy or every Batman movie ever, but this is the only Batman movie in one of those sets where the final fight takes place during the day. Yeah, I realized that. You know what it reminded me of, Joey? Ghost Rider 2, Spirit of Vengeance. Oh, yeah. Because then that, we finally get to see Ghost Rider in broad daylight, and it just looks amazing. And here, Batman looks great during the day. I was like, go patrol at like, you know, four in the afternoon noon every once in a while because you look just as scary and cool during the day maybe even more so because I, I can make out like all your gear and stuff 66 at the end they fight on the submarine in broad daylight suck at imdb trivia boards yeah i don't think any of the other batman's final the the church in 89 the sewer at the end but that, that's still at night because it's right after the, the banquet the stuff on the holy rusted metal island and the stuff in the observatory so yeah no all of that is at night as well i think that's all i got I like this movie a lot. I like Anne Hathaway a lot. Go see this movie. That's it. It's been a good trilogy. Batman's pretty cool. Uh, at least it was for a while. Um, and it probably will be again one day. I hope I'm dead by then, though. I'm good on Batman for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> I think we'll live to see the day where... Batman is fresh again, but I am truly impressed in what Nolan was able to do. Like, I mean, I'll say it again, but, I, you know, it was a line from the Joker. He changed things forever, and there's no going back. I mean, he changed the face of movies, you know, with them. Everything had to be dark and gritty after that. I mean, we even, for crying out loud, we even, we didn't do it personally, but Hollywood rebooted Spider-Man, the most, like, optimistic, gung-ho, go-out-and-have-fun character, and we got a dark and gritty reboot that lasted a movie or 
year too. And it was insane. Like they actually went there with it. So just a testament to how much this influenced is remarkable. So uh, it's just great that they're also really awesome movies that are a lot of fun and some of the best not just superhero movies, but these are just really good movies in general, too. So I'm really glad that we had the opportunity to share our thoughts on these. And I feel like we're still suffering with some of the aftermath of the Nolan trilogy and what he did with superhero movies because Marvel's, I think, pulled themselves out of it far and away and, and created their own identity. And DC is like, I feel like everything that has happened with the DC movies after this, really starting with Man of Steel, obviously, um, which was produced by him, I, I'm curious, I would love to know how much, how hands-on he was with that, but that's a story for another day. I feel like what we're seeing with DC comes from a fundamental lack of understanding in what made these movies work. And you can't just take a superhero movie and make it quote-unquote realistic and a little grimdark and have it work. And we've seen that time and time again that in the hands of 90% of, let's say, of, of directors and writers, the X-Men series maybe pulled it off one and a half times. Maybe two. Let's just give them two. Fuck it. Let's give them first class as well. Just to be charitable. But 90% of the time, it falls on its face. And the fact that this did it three times, even if you don't think these movies are great, it at least did them good or admirably. I'm hard-pressed to hear this movie, any of these trilogies, as, as bad frankly. Yeah. It's crazy because as much as like a tonal course correct the DC movies seem to be wanting to take with such stuff as Shazam and Aquaman and stuff like there's a new trailer for the Teen Titans TV show coming out where Robin clearly states fuck Batman. Yep. Like what is that about? You know it's like as soon as you think they're learn their lesson they turn around and double down and it's like you just are never gonna learn. It's just this is always that's the thing like maybe for worse but at least it happened, this is always going to be thought of in the back of their mind. So they're always going to try and recapture this. DC, come come here. Come really close. Come really close to the speakers. Well, this feels like an eco thing. Give give me a Nightwing movie, bitch. Oh, with Gosling as Nightwing? I, uh, whatever. I don't care. Just give, just give me a Nightwing movie, motherfucks. Well, for all things Cinemakers, all eight of these episodes of Christopher Nolan and our entire run of Steven Soderbergh and whatever else is coming next, you can go to cageclub.me, facebook.com slash cageclub or at cageclubpod on Twitter and Instagram. Email us, mailbag at cageclub.me. Sign up for our monthly newsletter at cageclub.me slash newsletter. We still have two more episodes left of Christopher Nolan, two movies that I love in Interstellar and Dunkirk. So that's really, really cool that we get to see those and talk about those again. So they're going to be coming in the next two weeks. But just go to caseclub.me, poke around, 19 shows. Mike has his own. Chris has his own. I've got a bunch of my own. Go do those things. Lots of things for you to listen to. Just go check us out. If you like this, shoot us an email. Let us know. Mailbag at cageclub.me. I'm Joey Lewandowski. I'm Mike Manzi. Chris Podcasts. I was really hoping one of you were going to say, and I'm Gotham's Reckoning, and we'll see you next time on Cinemakers. Cinemakers.